Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. This fall, LA Opera presents Gabriela Elena Frank's El Último Sueño de Frida y Diego, a fantastical exploration of the turbulent relationship between artists Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. In this episode, Miss Frank joins Dr. Christy Brown Montesano to discuss how the composer's multicultural heritage has influenced her work and inspired this innovative opera. Tickets to El Último Sueño de Frida y Diego and the rest of LA Opera's 2023-2024 season are available now at laopera.org. Hello, I'm Christy Brown Montesano, an affiliated scholar with Los Angeles Opera and also a lecturer at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music in Musicology. And I'm just delighted to be here to be able to speak with Gabriela Elena Frank about her opera, El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Obviously, you have come a long way from your days with the Modesto Symphony and much less your your university days. Most recently, you were awarded the Heinz Award in 2020. And I was really moved by how they described your work and part of the reason that they chose you as the recipient for this very distinguished award, saying Dr. Frank's vibrant works draw on her mixed race Latina heritage, weaving Latin American influences into classical constructs and breaking gender, disability, and cultural barriers in classical music composition. That's a lot. It isn't just, oh, she's an amazing composer and musician. She's written these fabulous works. This is really about who you are as a person, as well as an artist and an activist. And I heard somebody say, call you an anthropologist in a sense. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your relationship to your identity how your experiences as a person have informed your work as a musical artist and composer? Yes, this is a a wonderful question. And thank you so much for asking that. You know, from the time I was a very young, young child, I was quite aware that I was a phenomenon just for existing, that every room that I walked into, there was probably not going to be a person with my shared demographic. And... I remember very young singing the national anthem and kind of realizing that this wasn't written for somebody like me in mind, you know, and it, it was it was just this feeling of of how did I get here? Why am I in this community and who am I that um, little kids will just have these questions and not filter them out. And I think I built my adult life and my creative life not filtering out <laughs> these questions and really staying with them through my life. And I was encouraged to do that. So within my family, uh, we talked about these things. We talked about why that that my brother and I are the only Latinos in the advanced placement classes at Berkeley High School. Why why is this happening? How is it that I eat Chinese Peruvian stir fry in my household and I can't find this in a restaurant, but I can find other types of food in restaurants? It was just basic lived experiences that were deeply personal and intimate. It was it was just my experiences within my family and a small circle of friends. It wasn't something that I put in my music, which is very public and engenders 
interviews and articles and then uh, is studied in classes of music and is written about in major papers. That came later. And I think it has followed the trend for the United States to be asking these questions on a, on a bigger platform, that there just has been enough of an aggregate of people like me asking these questions about identity. Who is America for? Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm very patriotic. I really love this country, I'm, but I'm very American. This is, this is, to me, it's very common is to find people with, they have phenomenally diverse experiences. So I would have to go against my natural inclination to write music differently than the music that I write now. It has to be something that explores all these facets of my cultural heritage. I can see why you felt as you looked around, I'm unique. I'm me, right? There's not a, an easy, quick label for that. And that you doubled down as an artist to leverage that understanding, to enrich it. And that's why I was struck because so much of your scholarly work, work of letters and the interviews and communication is about a lot of different types of, we might say, Latin American heritage in a larger scope. So you were clearly drawn to that aspect in particular. That particular part of your identity had a special meaning for you, right? I Yes. And I think it's because I look Latina when you look at me and it's not immediately obvious the physical resemblance that I actually have to my Lithuanian Jewish grandmother. If you see pictures, you see, oh my goodness, I'm seeing Gabriela's hair, which is curly. And that comes from the Jewish side of the family or... Uh, I'm seeing that her profile is, you know, looks like her Jewish grandmother's. So I was treated as as a brown girl when I was a, a young child, uh, for better or for worse. And I wasn't treated as a Jewish woman. Um, and, you know, I never converted to Judaism, so I'm not um, uh, religiously of, of Jewish faith. And the Lithuanian identity, you know, you know, my family was in Eastern Europe at that time. The borders were shifting so much that Lithuania is the clearest area that we know, but we're not quite sure. They were coming from Russia. They came through Ukraine as well. And and Lithuanian is what my father remembers was still somewhat spoken in the household when he was growing up. He heard Yiddish and Lithuanian. He studied Hebrew in the Bronx when he was in, in Hebrew school. Um, so... Growing up in Berkeley, the music that I was exposed to, I wasn't exposed to Jewish music. I was exposed to Latin American indigenous styles and, and folkloric styles, which is not quite the same as indigenous styles. Because in the 70s and 80s, there was so much turmoil happening in Latin America that refugees were coming out. We're talking about La Guerra Sucia, the dirty war in Argentina or the um, the awful tensions between Allende and Pinochet in Chile and Peru went through a, a really terrible experience with Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, which is a terrorist group. So people were coming to the Bay Area and to New York and Helsinki and Madrid, major cities around the world, and bringing Musica Andina, Andean music, um, and restaurants. And so you start getting the ability to yeah, eventually there is Chinese proving stir fry that you can get at a restaurant now in certain major cities. But I was a veil 
the opportunity to see people that look like my mom. And they didn't look Mexicano. My mother, if you were to look at her face, really shows her indigenous heritage, her Spanish heritage, and her Chinese heritage. But I would see people that looked like her playing these amazing instruments, panpipes that were as tall as us, and small little charango guitars that uh, sounded incredible, and cane off flutes. And I would come home to the Western piano in my household, this little blonde used up spinet that we had, and try to make it sound like a panpipe and try to make it sound like a, a little charango guitar. And I was already trying to figure things out and was doing what I would do decades later on a much larger platform and with a lot of conservatory training, trying to make things fit and being happy with the results at the piano, like delighting in these sonic experiments and realizing that the concert ritual is one in which you hold the attention of an audience. They're going to listen to you for the duration of that ticket price. So two hours to get their money's worth. What are you sharing with them? And I felt this imperative to share the stories of somebody with, um, and it's not a unique story in that everybody has multicultural roots and uh, multicultural identities. Um, where it gets a little controversial is when people feel that a part of the world is imperiled if you write a symphony that dwelled on non-Western influences, which is a tragedy. I feel that culture is not a border, really. It shouldn't be this wall. It should be um, a portal and that we go through. It should be something that you go through and you enjoy the richness of the human experience. Why wouldn't you want to go to that restaurant or hear this music? When I mentor my younger composers that are wonderfully multifaceted, that it's, it's their job, it's their responsibility, is an act of humanitarianism, is to serve as a cultural witness in this way and to explore their heritage and with all the skill sets they have to better their skill sets so they can tell these stories in a really vibrant and vital way. So I was getting those lessons from the time I was a little girl, not even realizing how important it was that I was sitting at the piano and trying to make it sound like a like a panpipe. There's a resistance to the idea that something that is familiar or popular in some ways or has a particular ethnic identity, that somehow that can't be classical. I've run into that, the, the thing you've, you've talked about, that there is a border there. And that somehow, if you hear a song you know in a symphony, then something has been transgressed, even though that was absolutely part of uh, the palette of canonic Western composers, was to incorporate something familiar to their audience that the audience could respond to. And yet, there still is some resistance to the idea that if I hear something that reminds me of some other part of today's world, it's ceased to be classical. So it's exciting to see you just absolutely, um, not just with your music, but with everything, the poetry, the painting, the folklore, all of the things you've been studying to enrich your, your engagement, your relationship with these traditions to bring to the works that you're writing. This is your first opera, but it's not the first time you've worked with Latin American themes. Did those things help you approach El Ultimo Sueño? 
Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of reverence for history, and I have a large library of books on Latin American history and art that I'm constantly referring to. Earlier works before the opera gave me a process to approach the opera. If I'm writing a requiem about Malinche, who was Hernan Cortez concubine, with Cortez being the conqueror of the Aztecs, Malinche being a real-life indigenous woman that witnessed these continents clashing and had the ability to communicate with Mayans, Aztecs, and the Spanish because she was trilingual. That is an amazing story to tell through opera since history has not availed her a lot of attention. So she's not that well known. Then our job as creators, whether we're telling a story about Malinche or Day of the Dead or other uh, historical and or mythological figures, is to not simply tell the story, but it's to give it the kind of vibrancy that fiction, that fantasy, that music can give it. And it will give it a kind of urgency that will bypass the inhibitions you might have towards Latin Americans and strike you in your heart. And it will connect you through the skill sets you're seeing of these amazing singers and amazing sets and costumes. It's such a sensory feast that is going on while also engaging your heart and your intellect. The opera is a perfect medium for bringing all that together. I was kidding around with one of the directors that um, the only thing that's lacking here is we don't serve food. So El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego the Last Dream of Frida and Diego is about Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, the great painters of Mexico, who were global celebrities even in their lifetime. They were known in the United States and all through Europe. They have some history here in the Bay Area. We have some of Diego's murals. They got married again in San Francisco because they had a very tumultuous relationship. And my writer, Nilo Cruz, who had the distinction of winning a Pulitzer. He has scripted a story where Frida is a spirit in the Day of the Dead because in real life she died three years before Diego and in real life Diego died just a few days after Day of the Dead in early November. So it didn't take a great stretch to pull a death date back by a week and say for three years that he was a, a without Frida he's been asking for her to come back each November to reminisce as is the custom for spirit to reminisce with the living, with their loved ones left behind. And she has refused because she's still angry about everything. And she's kind of pouting. Um, and she also doesn't want to remember the pain, the physical pain of that trolley accident and all her really grim surgeries afterwards, the amputation of her, her limb, um, and the pain of Diego, which in a critical aria, she says, is like a trolley hit was the pain of Diego. At the same time, there was joy there. They really couldn't get enough of one another. And I think the relationship must have been something like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor or some of these other dramatic couples that impress one another and there's this real attraction there and, and they drive each other nuts, but then they just can't break it off. So Neela has told this wonderful story that Diego's asking Frida to help him cross over. He knows he's old and ailing. The whole first act is an effort among spirits in the underworld and, and some members of the living world 
to get Frida to change her mind. I don't want to give away too much, but Nilo had this wonderful way of doing that with some surprising other lead characters that are in the opera. When she does cross over in the second half, she and Diego are not really on the same page. She doesn't really go back for him. And so then the question all the way through the second act is, are they going to fall in love again? Are they going to be united forever in death? So Neil and I did quite a bit of, of a deep dive, not only in the painter's lies, but in the spiritual, social, even religious importance of this festival and where we could tell a fantasy, basically tell a lie, a fiction to enhance greater authenticity, to, to enhance um, what the love must have been like between Frida and Diego. And I think if we've done our jobs right, this is a believable fantasy. It's just like a good sci-fi writer. It's a believable fantasy when you can create something wonderful like that. What you're saying, this idea of believable sci-fi, I saw an interview that you gave and you said, I wanted to create a universe that doesn't exist yet seems authentic. I love that. There is sometimes where you're you're actually trying to get to a truth that is not fully revealed in just the actual facts, right? You're trying to get at something really authentic and profound about this these extraordinary people, their relationship, and also this wonderful anchoring theme, Day of the Dead, which in opera offers so many wonderful possibilities in terms of the staging as well. And I hope that our listeners will take a look at some of the images that are available from San Diego and from San Francisco, because the colors, the richness of the staging that's created really evokes, of course, the color and richness of the artworks of Frida and Diego as well, which was extraordinary. Were you excited when you finally saw the the full stagecraft. Oh yeah. And you know, with the first run in San Diego, we're still changing things. I'm sure there'll be even more in, in Los Angeles will be the third one that's in, in the fall. Um, I just love, you know, as a native Californian, that the first three ones are all happening in California. That makes my heart happy. These three houses that are so central to the opera life in California, it's fantastic. I was thrilled that you paired through Frida and Diego a mezzo-soprano and a baritone. wonder if you could talk about that in terms of your choice for those vocal ranges, vocal types for the lead characters. And then also I'd like to pick up these two extra characters. I really would like to speak with you about creating the voices for Nilo's characters, Katrina and Leonardo. I think... When Nilo and I were beginning to talk about the four leads of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, the more surprising characters of Katrina, who is the keeper of the souls, that's often pictured as a skeleton lady with a flowery hat in the Day of the Dead um, iconography. And the fourth lead, Leonardo, a young man who's a spirit who's trying to go back. Um, and he's, a, he's an actor. He's a fellow artist, which is really critical to encouraging Frida to go back. We knew that we needed to be able to hear all four of them on stage distinct from one another. They're all singing, 
we needed to hear the four different voice types. And so we needed, we didn't want like two sopranos and two baritones, for instance. So we had to decide, okay, is it Katrina, this almost deity-like figure who is a trickster figure and um, is always hard to pin down and she's got an element of danger to her and and um, she talks saucy to Frida and um, she's bossy. She bosses around the spirits and she can decide who's been good, who gets to go back. She needs to have a kind of virtuosity to her voice. And so she's almost a coloratura, which tends to lean towards the soprano uh, kind of casting. Immediately Frida with a mezzo. We heard a lower quality to her voice, not as low as an alto. We heard a sultriness. So that was the easiest decision. Diego, we went a few different directions. He was never a tenor for me, partly because of Diego Rivera's size um, and the fact that we wanted to highlight he was decades older than Frida. But what was tricky was that we needed to show Diego as an old man and ailing. So we needed a rich kind of tone, but then he has to be light on his feet when Frida's around him because she makes him feel young. He starts flirting again. He feels younger and just briefly feels vibrant again. So a baritone seemed to give us that kind of flexibility. And I think a bass baritone could do this part if they have a few high notes because we don't hang out too high like a tenor. Leonardo was a counter tenor right from the beginning. Something about the mystery of the counter tenor voice of a, a man that sings up in a falsetto. There can often be a youth that's on the edge of becoming an adult sound that we thought would be really nice. So that's how we approached it. And when we mentioned that to the original commissioning consortium of San Diego and San Francisco Opera, they then went on a hunt to find the singers they thought would work really well well with that. I've been reading about this character, Leonardo. So many of the critics are fascinated with the uh, countertenor and just the potential of this voice, which fell out of use for so long. And I've been thrilled to see more, perhaps after with the kind of early music resurgences in the 1980s, you're starting to see more opera oratorio composers looking at this voice. So it's exciting to see that uh, voice type come back with so many rich characterizations. Also was struck as I was reading about the opera and, and it occurred to me that it's in Spanish and the relationship of that language to opera, which has always been a l rather on the margins. You have uh, the zarzuela, tradition. But Spain, you know, at the time that opera was invented and picked up steam, had a complicated relationship with the genre. But this is another thing like the countertenor that seems to me untapped potential because it is such a beautiful language for singing. So I wonder if you could talk about what it's like for you to write vocal music in Spanish its particular qualities for you and your relationship to it as, as a composer? Yeah. Well, I'll just say first, on countertenor, there are so many coming out of the conservatories right now. And there's so many types of countertenor. Just like there are so many types of women's voices, there are low countertenors, there are mid-range countertenors, there are 
high countertenors. And it's not just a, a range, it's also a color and a movement, the way the voice moves from note to note. So some are more coloratura, some are more stand and deliver, and they need repertoire. A lot of them have voiced to me that they're tired of only singing early music or older music, and they would love to participate in this interest that we have in more contemporary stories. So I cannot tell you how many countertenors have reached out to me and my assistant to say, can I just do this aria as a standalone? I'm hearing that there's a really significant aria just for me. <laughs> They're delighting in that. That is about something much more contemporary. So yes, there's a big, big opportunity there to for composers to involve this wonderful voice type in our contemporary repertoire. Spanish is a beautiful language to hear sung. It's so open, it's so rich, it's so innately musical. And I write my best songs in Spanish, even though I'm not a native speaker. I think because it's always been such a romantic language for me, when my mom would lapse into Spanish when I was a little girl, she was suddenly not of this earth. That's what it felt like. I could suddenly see behind the curtain her life in Peru that I never saw. I had to trust that this is where she was from, you know, and I had to trust this Chinese Peruvian food that she was cooking was from her past and is what she ate. And Spanish was evidence of that. And my imagination would just fly. I'd say, what magical land is it that has this beautiful language where you, you roll your R's and you have these strange Enya symbols. So it's, I think a bit of a tragedy that we don't have more operas in Spanish. And I think there are more Spanish speaking composers or Spanish um, knowing composers that are writing songs, art songs, or writing requiems, oratorios, cantatas. And, and there should be a wave of us writing in for the opera medium. Uh, so I love that Nilo and I, right from the very beginning, were adamant but this is an opera that's in Spanish. I was thinking also in terms of opera traditions, something that really attracts me to the story that you have set up for El Último Sueño is that it reverses one of the archetype, perhaps the cornerstone of operatic story, which is the story of Orpheus, this demigod of music, and uh, Eurydice. I was thinking how interesting that you have really the power lies now with Eurydice, with the person making the choice here as to whether to return is Frida. And I've seen some people say, you know, Diego was, it's been written, oh, you know, calls out and the Underwood listens. And again, kind of going with that more Orpheus setup, the guy calls and the Underworld listens. But it, it, it seems that really it's the underworld is trying to negotiate with Frida. She is ultimately the one who will decide. There are two very powerful women in this opera. And the tension that exists between these two powerful women, women is palpable. They're, they're not friends. And I love that Nilo put so much time on the female dynamic that's going on here. Um, Diego is a simpler character and we wanted to focus on making sure that he wasn't just the villain, which is something that's very 
easy to do. I mean, you did villainous things. Um, it It's fascinating to me that our own emphasis on Frida and the female energy around her and her power and Katrina's power not necessarily being in alignment with one another parallels a bit what happened in real life in that Frida is everywhere. Her silhouette is on every t-shirt shop, stickers, bumper stickers. Um, you see menus and there's this iconography of her and images from her paintings have just penetrated popular culture in the decades since her death. There is a power to that, that she didn't have. She was more in Diego's shadow. And there's something just so compelling about her life story that has caught popular imagination. Um, I read somewhere that more books have been published about Frida in the last 25 years than about Diego. Even though Diego was the one that really commanded the attention and, and Frida was an afterthought. Oh, and his wife does a few little paintings too. This beautiful, cute young thing. So I think Nilo was so smart to focus creatively on Frida in this opera in this way. I mean, this could have been called El Ultimo Sueño de Diego y Frida, and it's El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego. And it's subtle, but there is a, an emphasis here that it's a little more about her. That is really powerful, this idea that there are these two women. They represent very different things. In a way, a bargain has to be struck. They're both powerful in different ways. And there's a negotiation between these two feminine creations, right? Because this is also imagination, which I love. And that is unusual in general because relationships between women of any kind in opera are not very common with a, enough time to get some depth to that, not just a scene or two, but we have plenty of hand ladies maids and, and governesses and occasionally some kind of mother surrogate will come in. Certainly a lot of cat fights between women fighting over the same man. These are de rigueur in canonic opera but here you have something quite special and quite rare. This known historical figure that you are presenting in a magical, realist way through this myth. In the old myths of Orpheus, they'll mention Pluto, his wife, or something, or Hades, his wife. But in this case, that afterlife, the point of power that Frida must negotiate with, is Katrina. It's a significant change from the usual dynamics. And Diego is important, but he's not the crux. So I love that because it, there's so often those relationships that are not in one or two categories of either mother or lover are not explored that often in opera. So that's incredibly exciting. It makes me want to ask how long it took to get this work completed, a little bit of its, its gestation. Um, but also your relationship to opera in general. Do you have favorites? Are there is there an opera memory that you have where you thought, oh, this is exciting. I would love to be able to create in this this particular genre. This opera was 
first pitched to me by um, a wonderful conductor named Joel Revson, who passed away a few years ago when he was still directing Arizona Opera back in 2007. And I was a new kid on the block, and then my career was just beginning to move. He had heard some art song. I didn't have a lot of orchestral experience yet. And he did something very dramatic. He flew over from Phoenix with somebody from his staff to just have a lunch with me. And I was very like, wow, somebody flew over, you know, and and um, said, we want to do an opera. The governor of Arizona really loves Frida. And there's this exhibit that we think is going to be coming around here for paintings. And, and we think you're the right person for it. That's how it came. And they wanted to do about Frida, but they, nobody said how, nobody suggested the day of the dead angle. That's all Nilo and, um, it was even suggested at that early point that I write the libretto and thank God my publisher said, you sit down, you're not going to you be a good little composer. You're just going to focus on a music. We're going to get you a real writer and possibly even a, you know, a dramaturg that he writes with to help out with the structure of the story. Then we just could not get it picked up uh, because Arizona Opera had to withdraw. And, you know, this was we're a Latino team. And uh, this is an opera in Spanish. And we weren't talking about including other voices then back in 2007. So it took about 10 years before the opera gods were in alignment with one another and uh, a consortium of companies, including San Diego, San Francisco, later came on board. Fort Worth was an early partner for it before it actually went into contract. And then I began really thinking about it because Neil and I like to say, man, that was the backdrop of our entire artistic relationship. We went on to work on at least a dozen other projects, very large ones, including this Malinche Requiem and including many other things. As far as my own opera love and exposure, I was not a big opera aficionado. I was really into chamber music and I had to be convinced to go into the orchestra world even from chamber music and the smaller forms and I did and I fell hard for the orchestra medium and it is mostly what I do now it's concert symphonic works but I had written for choir I love art song this this picture of just one singer and a piano to me is so beautiful and to get a bard that can just take you through a magical evening of storytelling and virtuosity and music is so wonderful to me. So I was doing everything you need to do to slowly really fall in love with opera. I really bit once the workshopping started and I just got fascinated. And then the final phase was the rehearsals in San Diego when I saw, my God, the lighting. Well, I get to go to a blocking rehearsal. What is this? You know, and, and the costumes and they have to sing this complicated music while I hit the mark on the stage. This is amazing. How did I write this opera only intellectually thinking about spatial needs or the time they need to come on stage or off stage? And fortunately, you know, I did a good job I, with my imagination, just trying to figure out, you know, how this was going to work on stage in costume with lights and, and having to hit your mark. But I find that all fascinating. And now, yeah, I would love to just write a bunch more operas because it is a wonderful world. And I love the specific opportunity of specific stories that you can tell, that you can hint at, allude to, write metaphorically around in instrumental music. You can write compelling music. In fact, I tell my composers, if you're writing something for voice with instruments, I want to be able to drop out the voice, listen to the instruments and know what the story is about. 
That's how evocative your instrumental writing needs to be. Don't think of it as an impossible goal. But now that I've done it, I also want the singers there. And I would love to um, stay in the theater world for that. My first experience with opera was when I was a freshman in college. And there was a donor at Rice University to the music school that could not use their front row ticket or like second row ticket to Houston Grand Opera. And it was Tosca cast in Nazi Germany. And I was floored by the energy of it. And Tosca was like part of the resistance movement, I think, if I remember correctly. And uh, it was an amazing experience, but also the concert venue and how excited the fellow audience goers were and and people were dressing up. It was You could see the love and passion from the audience. It's very infectious. It's very infectious. And we certainly felt that in San Diego with uh, the premiere. It was a big party before the show on, in, the, in the plaza outside the concert hall. And, and so many people showed up. And there was an ofrenda, an altar, where people could leave pictures of their loved ones. And there was food. And then the energy in the opera house was just so palpable and, and such a contrast to what it's like in my studio when it's just me and pencil and paper and my imagination and my private conversation with Frida and Diego and Katrina and Leonardo is to see it just blow up. It's not my piece anymore when it gets to be like that. It, it's now in the hands of everybody else. And I, I think opera is just a perfect venue for that kind of translation. It is a, really a transformative genre. I mean, it can be dangerous and it can be exciting. It can be a challenge for the composer, like the challenge for the librettist. Clearly, you've found an amazing collaborative partner in Nilo Cruz. I mean, and very blessed that way to have worked with each other for so long and and really understand each other's gifts this way. I had just one last question that if I could ask. I was struck by the fact that for the Heinz Award and and I've noticed other ways people talked about your work also representing disability. We hear about the big myths and and about the struggles of the artist and in terms of your own disability, I wonder how that's figured into your life as an artist. I'm very open about the fact that I have a hearing loss that I was born with. It's a neurosensory loss. It's never changed over my lifetime. And it's a pretty flat loss, unlike hearing loss that you may get when you age that targets your high frequencies first, which uh, targets speech and can be very isolating for people. Mine is very flat across all the frequencies. So it's easy to correct with hearing aids as a result. So the first hearing aids I got, they didn't know I needed hear, uh, hearing aids until I was five years old because it wasn't routine yet in the early 70s to test newborns uh, on their hearing and their sight. But my parents knew something was not you know, lining up right, that I was fairly quiet as a child. I loved the piano already. I was already playing and picking out tunes and notes because it vibrated and that to me translated in a musical way. I seemed like a happy little kid. I was playing with other kids in the neighborhood because kids don't need language to play with one another. And and my father used to read to me and would he was a big muscular man at that time in his life. He would hold me close and I would like a cello feel his body just vibrate around me as he was reading stories. So somehow I picked up reading a little bit. And 
when I got fitted with my hearing aids, they were analog hearing aids instead of digital hearing aids, which have a very pure sound that doesn't massage the sound through a lot of mechanical processes uh, like digital hearing aids do now. So um, I have perfect pitch. So in some ways I hear better than many hearing people. I'm just missing volume, as I like to say, and music is about a lot more than volume. It's about all these other things that fascinate us. I am somewhat at the mercy of my hearing aids that if it decides to magnify certain sounds over others, it can be what's not actually happening. And so I prefer that when I work with technicians, I'll say, I don't want this bell and whistle and I don't want, I don't turn everything fancy off. I just want a clear presentation through volume. Don't bring up the highs, don't distance the car that's behind me, make it seem farther away. I need to know, you know, things about the distances. But I lip read very well, and that's necessary for me is to um, be able to lip read. And I will sometimes have some challenges at my symphony rehearsal if the conductor is very far away from me and asking me a question on stage and I'm in the audience. So I normally will get the assistant conductor to sit next to me and I'll say, okay, I may need you to, <laughs> we might have to triangulate this. He says something, you tell it to me quickly, and then I speak to the conductor. But I hear the music just fine. Nobody ever looks at me strange saying, what are you hearing? You know, Why are you asking for this in this rehearsal? Or when I say, this is not balanced, way, people fix it. The nice thing about, if, you know, if I can say it's nice, the nice thing about having this hearing loss is I can turn off my hearing aids whenever I want, which is pop them out and I'm in silence. And that to me is like being able to close your eyes. I cannot imagine always having a see that you could never close your eyes. I can close my ears and I compose a lot in that space and, and something just happens to my imagination. When I'm really under a deadline, I may take off my hearing aids. My husband knows this for several days and I'm just in the music all the time and I'll come up with things that are impossible, a bit like your dreams when you wake up and they're impossible in real life, but they're wonderful and revelatory. And then they start to slip away as you're more in the waking world. And when I'm more in the hearing world, these very interesting, fascinating, imaginative ideas start to slip away. And I'm not alone. I know other people with various types of maybe blindness or hearing loss or other kinds of disabilities, where especially where there's like a sensory deprivation that learn to harness it. It allows you to squeeze that imaginative part of your brain in new directions. So it, it's not been a huge impediment except in some of these smaller ways that I've learned how to get around. You always see me in the front row if I'm taking a class. I'm not shy about asking somebody to repeat themselves if I didn't get it. I use subtitles and captions on everything. I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm born in this country where I could get the help that I need and explain what it has done to my imagination. I think I'm a better composer for having a hearing loss rather than one that has been impeded. That is really fascinating. The idea that you, as you say, you can close your close your ears in this case, you know, and just be in a space that feels different to you. Not just silence, but a completely different way of almost thinking about music in that space. So I just want to say, Gabriela Elena Frank, I felt even a little tongue-tied during this because I'm so in awe of you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I really am astonished at everything that you have achieved, at the things that you've created in your life and as a person and your way of thinking about music. And I hope you are serious about 
wanting to write more opera because I would be overjoyed to see more works come from you and and hopefully you and and Nilo to continue to enrich and to bring your view and your understanding of the the genre's potential and also your voice as a composer and as a person who's unique in the American context to American opera. Thank you very much for that. I I really appreciate that. And I think opera is the bomb. And and if it will have me, I will go there. Oh, it's ready for you. Tickets to El Último Sueño de Frida y Diego and the rest of LA Opera's 2023-2024 season are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.